the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. As I mentioned, in the third hour, Dr. Zudi Jasser will be in the house. He'll be taking all your COVID questions, vaccine questions, anything you want to know about anything. He's a man of many, many parts. He can talk on many, many levels. Do you know he has a chapter in William Bennett's Book of Man dedicated to him? I mean, he really is a heck of a heck of a human being, friend and world class doctor. But this is your hour, 602 I want to do a lot with you, but calls are always first. This looks interesting. Rabbi Jeffrey in Phoenix. Hello, Rabbi Jeffrey in Phoenix. Welcome. Hello, you can call me Jeff. I went to high school with you. Jeff, who went to high school with me? Oh, dear. Yes, I'm Lipschultz. You probably Jeff knew me as Eggman. Lipschultz. Yes, that's me. O-M-G. Can I say that to a rabbi? You can say, oh, my God. Yes. Oh, I, my I, gosh. I, I'll tell you what I remember most about you, how you could just kick my blankety-blank all over the tennis courts. You were a yes. heck of a tennis player. That was my brother, David. Yes, we were the tennis mavens back in the old days in the 80s. And you were a liberal from what I remember. Yeah, yeah I was. I was. I was. It's true. Yes. And you weren't a rabbi. No. There you I go. Wasn't. There you go. <laughs> things changed in the last 30 years. Yes, a few things say. changed. My gosh, it's good to hear from you. Are you? Uh, yeah, I moved back to Phoenix a year ago with my family. From and where? I turned on the radio, from, and my goodness, there you were. From where did you move? Where did you go? I was I was in Iowa, and I spent seven years in New Jersey before, uh, from 2008-2015. Then I was in Rock Island, Illinois, but I lived in Bettendorf, Iowa, at the Tri-City Jewish Center. Then that synagogue closed, and we decided to come back to Phoenix. That's where my wife is from. I'm, as you know, I'm from here as well. And, you know, I, I, I came back, and I got a job at a hospice. I met Madrona Hospice, which is the only Jewish hospice in Phoenix, and then the pandemic hit and everything froze. <laughs> my gosh, it's good to hear from you. You may not have known this. My dad was from Iowa. What, what, what city in Iowa? He was born, he moved here when he was six, so he's been, he moved here in the 1930s, but for his first six years of life, he was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And then... Yes, that's, that's one of the larger, that, that's one of the working class areas. I was up near Davenport, it's called the Quad Cities, but the synagogue was in... Davenport is where one of the first famous trumpet players is from, Bix Beiderbeck, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Got, got a lot of hit history. It's freezing there. We're and my other, the, and the rest of my family was from Muscatine. Muscatine, I guess that's part of the synagogue that I serve. They they still have a cemetery there. Wow. But they now mostly serve Iowa City. I can't believe this, Jeffrey. What a fun, what a fun um, reconnection. Yes, I got to get you back on the tennis court. Yeah, you do. Uh, yeah. You might actually beat me. I didn't play that much and give I, you an opportunity. I have to a good a backhand and a good serve. I lost my forehand, so I, you know, <laughs> maybe you can help me with I, my forehand. I had a two-handed backhand, but yeah. I 
gained about 60 pounds since high school, so uh-huh. I'm not as fast as I used to be. <laughs> Talk to me. What else is going on? What's uh, what's Well, this is it's the last day of Hanukkah, isn't it? Yeah, Hanukkah ends tonight. I was going to go pick up some donuts, and I turned on your show for the kids. Uh, my wife's a physical therapist. She's at Banner in, in Sun City, and I've been my hours have been cut down almost nothing because of the uh, the pandemic. This this has been rough, as you can guess. I, I just did a funeral for one of my patients. I'm sorry, and but mostly it's been a lot of free time, a lot of worrying, and a lot of a lot of worrying. Yes, yeah, so that's what <laughs> rabbis do best. <laughs> well. Very interesting, and I, I wanted to take that opportunity. I've been listening to your show, and it, it, it's very thoughtful. And even though I like I like you, and I like listening to your show, I am a liberal, so I'm sure we would not agree on a lot of things. But I really well, maybe we would. If you're a liberal, maybe we would, Jeff. Maybe or Rabbi, maybe well, we would. We, you know we don't know. We should go have coffee. We should, which is very interesting because. I am going to miss Donald Trump's incredibly pro-Israel, because I don't know if you know, I, I moved to Israel after college. I was there for about five years. No, I didn't know that. And he's done some amazing stuff in the region. It just really impresses me. I mean, I never thought that we would see possibly peace with Saudi Arabia. And Israel's really been a lot better, and I really hope the new Biden administration can at least take from some of the good that the Trump administration did to make Israel much safer and stronger. And in a sense, this is one of the good things that always drove us crazy for those of us who care about Israel, is there's this sort of almost blindness that goes on the liberal side that the idea is that power is always obstructive. And let's be honest, if Israel didn't have its military power, there wouldn't be an Israel. I remember on my last trip there, uh, which was almost exactly a year ago, I... um we did a tour of uh, Yad Vashem with a group, which is the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And um, I remember when we walked out, you know, it's a sombering thing. We walked out and someone on the tour I didn't know I overheard saying to someone else saying, now I understand why Israel has a military. It, it, it is. And the thing that always gets us, the old Yad Vashem tour, is you go and you see the children memorial. Right. Don't forget a million and a half children were murdered. Right. What's interesting about Israel, I think American Jews could learn a lot about this, is, you know, what's weird is I was a peacenik in Israel when I was there. I was part of Peace Now. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is that I, I went back to Israel in 2001 for my year of study. I don't know if you remember, after 9-11, that's when everything was blowing up in Israel. And I remember literally after one of the terrorist attacks, it was one of the worst experiences. I said, you know... I think I've changed my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I, I literally could make this stop. Uh, there, there is a sense of hope. I think it, Judaism, the sense of Hanukkah, is that you hope for the best. And I, I don't regret that we did Oslo, even though Oslo was a complete disaster. I think it had to be tried. One of my teachers, Rabbi Heim Bravender, said that even if it fails, it at least has to be tried. And even though I'm a liberal, I'm very pro-Israel. What worries me about Israel really isn't so much war. You know, Iran is scary, and they're very scary. What worries me is Israel itself, which is I I worry that the society is facing something very similar to America, which is its own little interreligious implosion, which is the Haredi or the ultra-Orthodox population has now grown to almost 12% of the population. 
And it's now becoming a problem with the general. Like when they were like less than half percent of a population, they could live their world and do what they did. But now that they're almost 12, you don't forget the men don't usually work. And they rely heavily on the social welfare of the society that it's getting to be a little bit of a hack. Uh, it, it's creating that's where the real friction is in Israel. The irony is, is I think the Palestinians, at least the ones in the West Bank, have sort of more or less made peace with the fact that they're not going to defeat Israel and they're trying to figure out what to do next. I, I am worried about Israel itself because I think they're going to go to another election. If you think about it, this will be what the fourth or fifth election in under two years. That's that's crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between the elections there and the elections in the West Bank with the uh, president of the Palestinian Authority serving in his 17th year of his one four-year term, isn't it? Yeah, but you don't want to, if the Palestinians had a free fair election, Hamas would probably win. Well, I understand, but that's that's part of the problem, too, when we think about it, isn't it? It, it is. I genuinely feel most of the Palestinians of the West Bank are exhausted. They, do. they really don't want another war. That's why, even though Gaza has been flaring up all the time, there hasn't been a really active revolt or active military revolt in the West Bank just because they did that in 2000. It lasted about almost three years, and it was bloody, mm-hmm. and it was disastrous. Mm-hmm. It, it, it killed almost 2,000 Israelis, but killed like up to 10,000 Palestinians in the process of the fighting, and it just made things worse. And I don't think there will be peace. I don't think there, I I know everyone keeps talking about the two-state solution, which would have been nice if it would have worked, but I don't know what the other option is, but I don't think a two-state solution can work at this point. I understand. I don't either. Not uh, not with what know, you consider the, the elements of what that statehood would be. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but in terms of Hanukkah, one of the things we celebrate, this is something I'm pretty sure because I am a rabbi and I can speak with authority of this. Hanukkah is one of the most militaristic holidays yes, that course. is probably the most anti-militaristic. Now, you ever wonder, like, think about this, Seth. You and I are both Jewish. We grew up with our Hanukkah stories. You know, what what does it say on the dreidel, Neskadol Hayasham, a great miracle happened there? Let's be honest. You and me talk honestly. Oil lasting eight days, is that a great miracle? (laughs) (laughs) Jeff, here's my problem. Rabbi, here's my problem. i got to take a break. I loved hearing from you. Would you email me, please? I'd love to get coffee with you. I would love to. I would love to sit down. What is, uh, you can do it off the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My producer will put it together for us. Yeah, yeah. Just hang on. Hang on. We'll be right back. By the way, Jeffrey, it was really sweet of you to call. And what a fun trip down memory lane. Gosh, you had, you had a terror of a serve on, in, on the tennis courts. Maybe you can get me back up to speed. 602-508-0960. I get scared if someone says I went to high school with you. It's a different guy. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Speaking of high school, that was the uh, intro theme to Channel 12 News back in my high school days, Children of Sanchez. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry. Sometimes that cleaning agent gets to me here. 602-508-0960. Larry's in Tempe. Hello, Larry. Hello, Seth. It's good to speak with you. Thank you. Good to talk with you. It's been a while. It has been. I've been listening. I hope you're well. I am doing well, yes. 
I was very motivated this afternoon to call, and I just simply couldn't call sooner. But I was very motivated by the comments, and I don't remember who you may have attributed it to. Time Magazine that, is what I think you're calling the Helen Keller thing. Okay. Helen Keller. Yeah, I was wondering if you were in the audience. It's okay for me to explain to the audience that you, uh, yes. you, you are, you are a man who. Um, how, how do you? How, what's the best way to say it, Larry? Blind, visually impaired, whichever. It, it's you are a, you are you are one of our a member of our blind community. How's that? Does that work? Yes, okay, I, I don't vernacular, but if that works, that you works. know, it okay. depends on the person. Yeah. Okay. It depends on the person because to me, blind explains it very well. Okay. Okay. Yep. Now, I'm totally blind. Some people are not totally blind, and so visually impaired probably addresses it better for them. Okay. So I wanted to... Is there a difference between visually impaired and blind? I'll tell you what my my understanding would normal, or the normal thing would be is visually impaired means you might be able to see a little, but less than fully, whereas blind means you don't see at all. I don't know if that's a distinction that matters or means anything. Okay. I don't know that it totally matters because legally blind is also a term that yeah 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 legally who, blind could be the same as visually impaired right right yeah, yeah. I, but i my when i said it that way i just meant that visually impaired could imply some amount of vision yeah i'm with you okay okay yeah. thank you well i wanted to describe my privileged life as a blind person okay I was 18 when I lost my sight. I had the privilege of learning how to live without sight. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of learning how to get around without driving myself. I had the privilege of learning some relatively basic things in life, but when you go from sighted to not, Mm -hmm. they become different, such as tying shoes. Such as what? You know, such as tying shoes. Oh, tying shoes. shoes. Something as simple as trying, yeah, as, yeah. as something yeah. we take as for granted as tying shoes. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Yes. Okay. You know, things such as writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, us. sure, sure. But it's a privileged life. How many years are you from 18 now? I'm 35. That was 35 years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm, my point of saying it that way, of course, is to say, that Time Magazine is absolutely ludicrous to apply a word like privileged to Helen Keller or anybody else who has any sort of disability. It is not to say that my life is horrible. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't trade my life. Mm-hmm. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's an important concept in life, and that is to not be a victim. So Helen Keller is not mm-hmm. someone whose politics I would normally embrace on on many things. Yeah. She lived in a different era and was part of a you know political movement that I wouldn't embrace. But I've always thought her story inspirational, and I know sure. I know I'm not wrong on this, Larry. That people who have grown up with or have been um, stricken by a blindness or deafness situation, they owe a lot to her. I mean, she 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 yeah, created absolutely. a lot of the education, public education that gave us the social services that help all 
of us in the disabled – not us. I'm not in it. I didn't mean that. But everyone in the disabled community. Right, everybody who is. Yeah, yeah. She's the George Washington of the disabled community. I thought – I always mm-hmm. thought that anyway. Well, I would I would say that certainly she's a big part of that. I don't know that – I haven't really studied her life. I know bits and pieces about it. But I think strictly from the standpoint of her situation, and I don't want to, again – parallel my my life directly with hers because I do have vision. Uh, right, you have hearing. Right. Hearing, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so I'm in that regard I am very blessed. Sure. I, I see that as a big blessing because I like music. I like to even like to sing. I I like to talk on the phone with Seth Leibson. And That's so sweet. there's a, a there's a blessing. But the thing is is that so many people and to, for them to put it in the context of a privileged white woman. Right. It you wipes know, away everything. Just... It takes away, it wipes away everything under the guise of some pseudo-sophisticated um, label that we mm-hmm. affix to anyone who doesn't share the right color. The irony, of course, is that you couldn't have been more colorblind than Helen Keller, or yourself, I suppose. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that's the dramatic that... irony of it. It is literally, that, literally colorblind, it, you know. Yes, absolutely, and it takes away, it robs her, or if you apply that to then any other person with a disability that learns to deal with it, learns like I, you know, you're forced as a person in that situation to make a choice: mm-hmm. either I'm going to adapt, mm-hmm. or I'm not. Right, and. There probably are people who really don't too much. I don't know. But for me, I would not trade. And I said this a little bit ago. I wouldn't trade being blind, not because it's the easiest life, but because it is part of me. I believe it's part of who God allowed me to be. Interesting. But yeah. it, it, to, to claim, well, she's just a privileged white woman, right. or right. I, as a Caucasian, I'm a privileged white male, takes away robs all credit to someone like Helen Keller for what she endured and how she pushed forward. It's a really good example. Are you a Caucasian man, Larry? I am, yes. It's a a really interesting take. Um, No, takes the wrong word. It's it's really illustrative. It's really illustrative of the shame of of people being categorized because of the color of their skin, because what this person is doing, Timothy Leary, you know, who's become famous for being the father of acid, he had a specialty before he got into that, into something called psycholinguistics, and he talked about words freezing reality. I'm going to a break. Pause on that notion, words freezing reality. Can you stay with me a little longer? I want to pick up on this when we come back, Larry. You sure can. That would be great. And anyone else who wants to join, 602-508-0960. Who knew this is where we'd go? I love it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. You've heard me talk about Balance of Nature. It is simply my favorite product. It just is simply that to take and to promote one daily dose gives you tens of thousands of vital nutrients it boosts your energy your immunity it improves your health it's made of all great potent healthy stuff blueberries bananas spinach garlic 
cayenne pepper. Um, and they have a great deal, just a great deal right now where they're giving you free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. One of the most interesting people I've gotten to know uh, in my years of doing the show is our is our caller on, on the line, Larry in Tempe. Brings just such an interesting perspective to things. Larry, thanks for staying with us. Thanks for calling, first of sure. all. Um, dismissing someone as because they're white, um, in this case, Time Magazine allowing an essay that dismisses Helen Keller as uh, just nothing more than white privilege. She doesn't have much more to teach the world because she is a woman of white privilege was the um, inspiration for your calling in, you being a man who is also blind. I um, This this labeling of someone like Helen Keller is puts is, – puts in sharp relief the entire problem of labeling by race, labeling someone by race for good or for ill. And what this person in Time Magazine is doing is, I I said before the break, Timothy Leary, before he got into the whole acid thing, when he was doing psychiatry and linguistics at Harvard, he had this line about words being the freezing of reality. And what he meant by that is you can use a word for good or ill. You can once use it, once it's used, though, it brings on a kind of permanence. So, you know, you can be yeah. you can be blind from birth if, if, if that's the case. But I can I can use the miracle of the proper noun and say what a table is. And you have in your mind's eye, you know what I'm talking about. It, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. may, it may have different colors, different lengths you know, different wits, but you know what a table is because we have a language, a common a common noun we understand. What these people are doing is they are wiping away anything about, anything important about this person by, by imprinting them with the label of being white. I came to this, interestingly enough, through someone who also was expert in disabilities. I think you're younger than me, younger than I, but there was a man on the scene, he's no longer around, a psychologist named Leo Buscaglia. And oh, yeah, yeah. you know the name. Okay, so he got his yeah. start in disability education before he went into psychology um, for the masses. He, he got his start in disability education. And he was riffing in one of his speeches, I remember, about that notion of words freezing of reality. Because these labels, white, Black, they're distancing phenomena, he said. They push us away from each other. He said, black man, what's a black man? I've never known two alike. Does he love? Does he care? What about his kids? Has he cried? Is he lonely? Is he beautiful? Is he happy? Is he giving something to someone? These are the important things, not the fact that he's a black man or a white man or a Jew or a non-Jew or a Christian or you name it, right? Mm -hmm. We've taken away Absolutely. someone's humanity by affixing their race as important to them, which is what the Nazis did. Sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. It, in, in essence, that becomes, and I often prefer the word prejudice. That's what term used to be used a lot years ago versus racism. Mm-hmm. Prejudice. You're prejudging yep. somebody yep. On in the context of this. It's a better on, word. You're right about that. It's a better word. Superficial, yeah. unimportant details. Mm-hmm. And I have experienced, and not this isn't meant in a negative way at all, 
but I experience fairly regularly talking to people and I say that I'm blind or if they meet me, they, depending upon the individual, how quickly they pick up on that I'm blind, they'll make some sort of comment along the lines of, oh, wow, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. No, well, how long did it take you to learn Braille? Mm -hmm. And those questions are fine. Those Mm -hmm. comments are fine. There's not a thing wrong with them. But what it does is it does identify that there is a a, um, type of label, not label so much, but there's characteristics. An identity. Let's call it what it is. Yeah, an identity. Yeah, that's the best word. There is an identity attached to it. Mm -hmm. And for people who are sighted, there's an identity with blind people that comes from simply they they aren't there, so they have to, I, all they can think about is, in fact, I've had kids ask me this, well, how do you eat? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a simple question, but mm-hmm. it's great. I love talking to kids because they ask the simple question sure. when adults are afraid to because they think it'll be stupid. Am I up against but, it, Bill, on the break? I might be. Bear with me, Larry. This is so fascinating. Okay. Bear with me. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. If you're in the real estate market to buy a house or sell a house, James Wexler was on the show earlier of JMG Real Estate is the man you want. He is ranked the number one selling individual agent uh, by the Phoenix Business Journal in Arizona, a number one selling individual agent in Arizona. And um, he also has a private database of homes that will soon be going on the market if you're looking to buy a house, um, helping you avoid bidding wars and missing out on perhaps your dream home. He also guarantees to sell your home at market value or pay the difference. For maximum convenience, James can make you an upfront guaranteed offer on your home within 24 hours as well. Give him a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. I'm having a fascinating discussion with my friend Larry and Tempe about uh, labeling people and Really, but you, Larry's preferred word, prejudice over racism. Larry, you were talking about when you talk to kids, what they ask you as a blind man. Yeah, they ask something as simple as, how do you eat? Mm-hmm. And it's not an offensive question in any way. It's a type of question I love because as a sighted person, especially children, because they they don't usually know how to think through, Yeah. well, what are the steps? What does it take? Sure. And I love to just say, well, I put my fork in the bite, and I lift it up to my mouth, and I chew. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. And I don't say it belittlingly to them. I don't mean it that way, but to educate. And so what happens is people who are not informed or educated on something either react in a way that does belittle the person and doesn't give them credit or they react in a interested way that wants to learn mm-hmm. and the people in our society today who the most important details are the superficial ones yeah. skin color yeah. they're the ones that they end up belittling people because everybody who is this fill in the blank if it's everybody who is black 
must therefore be the same. Mm-hmm. And it totally takes away individuality. And different. Totally and different from you. Different from you and the same as each other in that category. It's a double offense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's it, it just is a dehumanization. It is, frankly, it's offensive. That's far more offensive than anybody saying something to me about my blindness because they're just being honest. Yeah, that's you know what's interesting about this is we talk about reversals. This was the whole point of the integrationist ethic, uh, starting, I guess, in the 40s, picking up steam in the 50s and 60s. The idea that if we integrated our society, if more people of different races you know, spent more time together— um, they would understand each other as humans, not as blacks mm-hmm. and whites. And that's now been reversed, hasn't it, yeah. uh, on the race oh, yeah. thing? That's been reversed right. because we now have self-segregation. We have black dorms and graduation ceremonies and now this identification business where someone's white so they're in lesser than someone who's black. It's just an exact reverse of what we used to, what we as white people – were accused of doing to black people. They're black, so they're worse, right? That was that yeah. was that was the prejudice we were trying to fight with integration. And now we resegregate and look at what it's wrought. We're back into this race game where we use the color of skin, which is the crudest characteristic of a human being, to adjudge their most uh, subtle um, the most subtle aspects of them: their soul, their yeah. brain, their their work sure. ethic, their their sense of humor, their sense of kindness, their decency, their mm-hmm. indecency, right? Yes. All those characteristics, isn't that what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, said? The of content course. of their character versus of co- the color of, of their course, skin? Of course, of course. I remember even before Jesse Jackson got so political, he was talking about, you know, we used the word as a society. Too many people did. I never did, of course, and you never did probably. But too many in society would use what's known as the N-word. And that mm-hmm. was a way of dehumanization. That was a way sure. of dehumanizing someone. Jews had a, a label to them. Every, every, every minority group had a label to them. Yeah. Um, Hispanics did. Everyone did. And, and it was a way of dehumanizing. It's no yeah. different when we dehumanize by race today. It's, it's really no different. It's a dehumanization. So who was Helen Keller? No one to pay attention to here. Just some other white privileged girl. Right? Well, and, it, and again, it, it, it eliminates any accomplishment, any quality, any strength that person has simply because, well, they couldn't have earned it on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I would... I would love for that person or people who wrote that essay to have the privilege for even just two or three days. Mm-hmm. We could find a nice blindfold that would keep them without seeing any light for a few days and find out just how privileged that is. And again, it's not impossible. In fact, it's not difficult, but it isn't something you do without some effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's also, again, where the simplicity of the thought process ruins their vision. I mean, what's the old saying? There's none so blind as one who will not see. Yeah, yeah. And the writer of that article is, frankly, the more blindest blind of than them I all. Because yeah, the most blind of them choose. all. Yeah. 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 Larry, what a great call. Gosh, this is just perfect. And it brought me back to some things I hadn't thought about in a long time, that Piscoglia stuff, that Timothy Leary stuff. God well, bless think, you, sir, and thank you. 
thank you so much. I hope I hope you you were describing people who when they learn of or suspect you're blind, they they say certain things. I hope I was not one of them. If I was, I apologize. Lincoln. um, I remember Frederick Douglass said of Lincoln, he was the first political leader who I felt talked to me as a man and not as a black man. Mm. I've always loved that. Always loved that. Nope. To your audience, and I'm sure for the most part, your audience doesn't do this. Well. God bless you, Larry. You're great. This was really give people uh, this was a, a chance based on their character. This was a treat, a real treat. Thank you, sir. Thank you. God bless you. All right, what do I do next? Raymond in Scottsdale. Hi, Raymond. Hello, Seth. Uh, I'm, I have to switch topics here. Listening to your past, there's no switching of topics. Anything is everything. Okay, it, it's great. all one one honeycombed web. Thank you. I'm reading a book that I just found. It was uh, published in 1972 by Thomas Savage, a Jesuit, who I had the privilege of taking his modern poetry course at Xavier University in Cincinnati. No kidding. But he's no longer with us. But uh, uh, as to your last topic, he, he talks about the age of Aquarius. This book came out in 1972. Oops, hold it, hold it a sec. I got to take a quick break. This sounds important, sure. Raymond. We're doing important stuff today. I love it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Raymond was getting into something deep. Hi, Raymond. Thanks for waiting. Go ahead, sir. And a little Judy Collins there. Yeah, a little Judy Collins. Perfect pitch. Uh, anyway, Thomas Savage, who was a, a, a Jesuit priest uh, and, and a, a brilliant uh, man, wrote in this book, he's talking about uh, uh, racial issues, he said, because uh, it, it came out in 1972, the age of Aquarius, yep. and he said it would be ironic if the age of Aquarius, which presumably craves to unite us, should only serve to divide us further because of an awkward focusing on the purely ethnic distinctions among us. Hmm. Read that again. Uh, it would be ironic if the, if the age of Aquarius, which presumably craves to unite us, should only serve to divide no. us further because of an awkward focusing on purely ethnic distinctions among us. I give you BLM. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, in this in this book, he also talks about uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century as uh, his um, following principles for, for a just war, mm-hmm. uh, the war on COVID, for example. Uh, okay. One of the principles is it must be fought with right intentions. Yeah. I question whether this one is being fought. I with do the right too, intentions. and we'll get into that with Dr. Jasser, who's a student of Aquinas, when he comes in. I, I remember uh, what, what it, I learned it as the Latin just ad bellum, just in bellus, right? Uh, the right to go to war and then the right doing, the doing of right in war. That's how mm-hmm. I remember Aquinas yeah. separating it. And yeah. Aquinas, is, his fourth principle here, he said, the harm done by the war must not exceed the right. good that comes from it. Right, right. The principle of proportionality. Right, right. The principle of proportionality. That's good stuff, Raymond. Interesting stuff from Thomas Savage. God bless you. How do you spell the last name? S-A-V-A-G-E. Yeah. 
they knew something, those those scholars back then, didn't they? Oh, uh, he was wonderful. I had him for a modern poetry course, and it was just incredible. I bet it was. I bet it was. What do you do now? Are you a poet now? No, no. I just, I, I just do various things. You call me and talk Aquinas. What else is there I, to do <laughs> on a Friday afternoon? I, I love it. I love I it. Thank Thomas you. Savage, one day he, he said, he, there's this poem, I met him at the Green Horse Inn by the Surrey Docks. Saturday was the color of his socks. And he asked everybody in the room, what do you think he meant by that? And, he, and uh, finally he said, well, I was over there and I met him and I asked him. And he said, well, those were the socks he wore on Saturday. <laughs> Throwing a little Occam's razor into the whole thing, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <this> <laughs> Raymond, what a delight. Don't be a stranger. We'll be right back.